Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Libby Hawker, the author of The Sekhmet Bed, the first in a four-part series on Hatshepsut, one of the few female pharaohs of Egypt. Libby has also agreed to become my co-host, as I mentioned in an earlier interview, so you can expect to hear a lot more from her. Libby is not the first self-published author I've interviewed, but she is the first one I know of who's sold enough books to quit her day job and write full-time. One of the topics I'd like to discuss with her is how she managed to pull that off. The high quality of her writing is clearly one part of the equation. But we will spend most of our time talking about her books. The main character of the Sekhmet bed is not Hatshepsut, but her mother, Amos. When the book opens, she is only 13. Chapter 1 Amos woke to a terrible high-pitched wailing. She fought against sleep, kicked and scratched at it until it released her. She lay in her bed for a long time, eyes staring wide but seeing nothing in the dark, transfixed by the distant rise and fall of the cries. In the moments just after waking, she could not place the sound. A cat? Some strange bird? Her mind cleared, and with a chill she recognized the sound of weeping women. She found her way through the chamber in the dark, still naked, her feet cold against the mosaic floor. Before she reached the door, she knew. The presence of the gods was heavy about her, thick as honey in the air, pressing, warning, For Amos, the gods were always explicit. She pulled the door open with numb hands. The hall of the House of Women was alive with moving shadows. In the darkness, the painted forms on the mural walls stretched and distorted, reaching arms towards Amos where she stood, shivering. The close air was dense with the odors of perfume and flowers, too sweet to be appealing. From far up the corridor, the wailing drew closer. Women's shapes formed out of the darkness, leaning on each other, hands clawing at faces, gowns ripped in mourning where any were dressed at all. Amos watched them come. Then she watched them pass her door, heedless of her presence. Renanet, Hentaneb, Hamat, Bekadaman, all the faces of the harem she knew and loved, reddened with sorrow, mouths distorted with crying. They moved past her as a single body, with many weeping eyes, many clawing hands, one being with many grief-stricken cause. And now, please join me in welcoming Libby Hawker. Hi, Libby. I'd like to start. Hi. With a, hi. <laughs> I'd like to start with a big thank you to you on the air for agreeing to join me here on NBHF. Um, we're going to be able to post twice as many interviews, and I'm really looking forward to working with you. I'm looking forward to it too. It should be very fun. So, as I always do, let's begin with you. Uh, how did you get into writing fiction? Um, well, I guess I've always been very interested in writing. I've always loved books ever since I was a little kid. Um, I don't have any college education, though, and I went to, uh, like, an arts-focused high school. It was kind of an experimental, like, hippy-dippy college, or, uh, high school type of experience. <laughs> um, and there I kind of focused most of my assignments through creative writing or um, stage writing for doing, you know, writing plays and adapting other plays into musicals and whatnot. So that's kind of how I got my start with writing was in that very odd school. Um, But after high school, I really kind of lost focus. I went through 
sort of a difficult marriage and um, just kind of hit a wall and wasn't really doing anything creatively, but I always wanted to, and I always wanted to get back into writing. It's always been very important to me. Um, and one day I'm, I'm a really big fan of street magic, oddly enough, but um, I came across a bio about one of my favorite magicians who's Teller from Penn and Teller. And um, I read in that, that he really didn't get onto his current career path of doing magic professionally until he was 30 years old. I was 28 at the time. And I thought, Oh, it's not too late for me. Okay. I've got two years to get it together. (laughs) So I sat down and really thought about what I wanted to write. Um, Specifically, I was, you know, kind of thinking, all right, I need to, really get serious and drill down and just get moving on this if I want it to be my career. And when I considered what I wanted to write, really the only answer for me was historical fiction. And that's interesting. Why did you read historical fiction when you were a kid? Yes, I read a lot of it. I mean, it was always my favorite thing. Yeah. Did you read about ancient Egypt then too? Um, There wasn't a whole lot of historical fiction about ancient Egypt back when I was a kid, I mean, it's definitely starting to pick up more now, but uh, mainly I was really interested in any kind of fiction that focused on ancient cultures. I really loved The Red Tent. I read that book, like, I don't know, five or six times (laughs) throughout high school. Um, Yeah, anything that was, like, Middle Eastern. There was a lot of biblical fiction available back then, even though I'm not particularly religious. I got my historical fiction fix through reading about all these different cultures that were, you know, ancient Babylon and ancient Canaan and all these other... uh, great cultures that you can read a lot of in the Bible. So um, mostly that was kind of where I focused my reading back during those days. So once you decided that you wanted to write, uh, how did you go about it? Did you just sit down and start your first draft? Yeah, I did. I mean, I just kind of decided, all right, this is it. I've got to get going. So, <laughs> so I opened up Word and I just started kind of pecking away at, at what was the very beginning, very early stages of the segment that it does not resemble the present book in any form. In fact, I don't think I still have that that old draft available. But yeah, I just kind of started where I felt the story should start, and I just started writing. And as I was writing, I was also doing a lot of supplemental research. I was already pretty familiar with Pat Chetsuit, but of course, if I wanted to write a serious historical novel, I had to make sure I was really up on my historical facts. So I kind of dug into research at the same time with that. Uh, yes, the books have a lot of research. You even use the old names for places that we know as Thebes and um, you know old names for the gods in some cases and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so you did all of that while you were writing? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote, I don't know, maybe half of a, an initial draft of, of this book and kind of went back and started it over and tried a different approach. And, you know, I wasn't outlining my books at the time. I do now, but at the time I was just what they call pantsing, going by the seat of my pants. And it wasn't working out so well for me. I think I was really kind of wasting a lot of time and effort with sort of messing around. Um, But yeah, I was doing a lot of research at the same time that I wrote and kind of developing the story as I delved deeper into the research and sort of got a clearer idea of who these people were and what was the overall um, kind of aspects of this particular history that I wanted to focus on in fiction. And once you you said that the first draft doesn't bear much resemblance to the published version, which I think is true of most people's first drafts, period. Never yeah. mind their first drafts <laughs> of their first novels. Um, but what what stages did you go through then once you had started writing to get it to where you th- felt that it was publishable? Well, um, after I sort of hit a few different brick walls with, with trying to fly by the seat of my pants, 
I stepped back and um, I did do a, a complete outline of the book. And at the time, I intended this book to be about Hatshepsut. So it was supposed to sort of start with her birth and her early life, excuse me, and to sort of flow all the way through up until kind of the, her downfall and the end of her, her reign. Um, and, the, and as I started to outline this and figure out, you know, which portions of her real historical story were going to be workable as fiction, it just kind of grew and grew. And pretty soon I realized I had three books on my hand and eventually it actually became four books. <laughs> so um, once I had it outlined, I could clearly see, okay, here's where I'm going to focus um, this early part of the story on Hatshepsut's mother instead of on her herself. And that became the first novel in the series, which is The Sekhmet Bed. So let's get to her mother in just a second, but you ended up self-publishing the segment, Bed. Uh, tell us why, yeah. why you made that decision and how it's worked for you. Well, um, this was, I, I finished the book, let's see, early 2009, and then I worked with two different literary agents, um, and we worked to try to get the book sold to a publisher um, for quite a while, almost two years in total, and it just wasn't really finding a toehold anywhere. We had a lot of interest in it initially, and a lot of people um, took a look at it and said, well, if you rewrite it as a young adult novel, we'll do it, or if you change it all the first person, we'll do it. And, you know, they wanted me to make too many changes to it, and I just wasn't comfortable with those changes. So eventually it got rejected by, I think, every single um, imprint at a major publisher <laughs> that handles historical <laughs> fiction. <laughs> so um, it was uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> it is and interesting. at that point, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it is a distinction of sorts, but I suspect it affects more people than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in spite of that, I never felt discouraged by it, which was really surprising. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was, you know, I, I felt very strongly that it was a good book and that readers were going to like it. And, it just needed a chance to fall into your readers' hands, and they would accept it and like it. So um, I looked at small presses for a while. At the time, I just didn't find any small presses that I felt were doing a really good job with historical fiction. There are some now who I would definitely consider working with, I think. Um, but back then, I just wasn't impressed by what I was seeing from the small presses. Um, so I just thought, well, you know, I might as well just self-publish it and see what happens. Like, you know, where am I going to go with it at this point? Anyway, <laughs> it's made the rounds of all the publishers and they don't want it. So um, I threw it out there in 2001 just as an ebook, and um, just kind of forgot it was there. I just moved on and worked on a completely different book in a different genre and just didn't really have much thought for the segment bed. And after a while, I started getting these deposits in my bank account and I had sort of forgotten that I had self-published it. And I was like, where's this money coming from? <laughs> What's going on? And then I remembered, oh yeah, that book. So um, yeah, I watched it from that point, just kind of really find its niche with readers and sort of take off. It was, it was impressive to watch. I, you know, this was uh, late 2011. Ebooks were still very, very much a new thing. And, and um, this self-publishing thing had only just started to sort of disrupt the, the greater publishing industry. And I just wasn't paying any attention to it. I was just so focused on writing my next book. And I, I really had no idea what was going on with eBooks or with self-publishing, even though at that point I had self-published. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how I made it work so well for me. I still ask myself that question all the time. Um, historical fiction isn't really one of those genres that it's considered relatively easy to make a living with. I mean, most of the time when you hear about indie authors who are able to quit their day jobs, they're typically writing in romance or sci-fi or sometimes thrillers. Um, Historical fiction doesn't tend to have 
as large an audience, um, and they're not quite as receptive yet to, to reading self-published stuff, um, kind of without any reservations. Um, they're getting there, though, which is nice to see. Um, but I think really the biggest factor in this book finding its audience and being successful was really luck, honestly. <laughs> um, there just weren't that many novels that were set in ancient Egypt at that time, and most of the ones that were, that did have that setting, were either out of print or they weren't available as ebooks. So I just lucked out. I came along with this sort of rare setting that readers were really starting to look for and want. And it was an ebook, it was low priced, it was easy to get, and they were just willing to take a chance on me. And I think that's pretty much that's pretty much uh, what happened for me. It was uh, being in the right place at the right time. Um, now there's a whole lot of really great Egyptian fiction out there, which is really nice to see. And, and a bunch of it is coming from independent authors. Um, I think I've read most of the indie Egyptian novels that are out there, and I've enjoyed almost all of them, so it's nice to see that this setting is attracting a lot of really smart, talented authors. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as me being kind of one of the first ones to get an ebook out there in that setting, that was purely luck. <laughs> So. Well, that's a great story. I don't know if, uh, if um, you know, future authors are going to be pounding their heads against the desk in despair. Or, you know, <laughs> well, they'll take it to, well, you know, maybe sometimes it works. <laughs> it's still a great story. Throw the spaghetti story. at the wall. Sometimes it'll stick, right? There you go. Well, we're all happy yep. for you in any case. <laughs> so let's get into the story, uh, which, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, where I mispronounced the heroine's name, uh, begins with Amos, uh, a 13-year-old uh, who, as you mentioned, is um, the mother, the future mother of Hatshepsut, uh, not at 13, yep. of course. And she's also the younger daughter of Pharaoh by his chief wife, um, that is, since he has a harem and many women residing in it. So tell us about Amos uh, at the beginning of the novel and why you decided to begin your series with her. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I actually did not intend to write a complete novel about Amos, really. Um, I wanted to tell just Hatshepsut's story. But then as I got into this research I was talking about, you know, the more I kind of tinkered around with the storyline and the more research I did, I became more and more interested in this one particular mural on um, one of the walls of her temple. She has this beautiful temple that still stands at a place called Dar al-Bahri in the Valley of the Kings. It's a gorgeous piece of architecture, um, really unlike anything else that was built in Egypt during that era. Um, and this mural in this temple depicts the god Amun, and he appears to her mother, Amos, and he's kind of disguised as her husband, who's the pharaoh Tutmos I. So this mural is pretty obviously just like a piece of political propaganda that was kind of meant to prove that, hey, Hatshepsut really does have this right to rule Egypt. You no, know, yeah, I know she's a woman, but look, her father is Amun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's all legit. Um, but I kept thinking about the images in this mural and just kind of turning that over in my head. And eventually it turned into this whole story about a very young woman who is, has this really strong connection to the gods, and she truly deeply believed that she conceived Hatshepsut with a god, not with her husband. Um, so initially I intended that story about Amos and her beliefs to be just kind of a prologue to the real novel. Um, but then it just became too intriguing for me. I just couldn't let that story go, and I just had to flesh it out and give it this complete life of its own. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting story because it's a little bit, um, how should I put this? In a, in a sense, it's a romantic story, but it doesn't follow any of the conventions of historical romance, which 
I like a great deal because historical romances hardly ever, you know, you write a historical romance, it has to follow certain conventions, which are based on a modern day view. But in history, I mean, most times and places have no concept of romance when they see it as passion and it's a disruptive force. And, you know, Tristan and Isolde, uh, you know, it tends to be tragic and, and not supported by history. So putting a historical romance into a historical context is either uh, ahistorical or it's problematic, whereas this story really focuses on Amos's development as a human being. You know, it's almost like a ritual preparation for her mission, which is to bear Hatshepsut. Right, yeah, and and I I kind of, that's very accurate (laughs) in the sense of the the complete series of books, too, because I did sort of have to have that character go through um, these sort of steps to to kind of support the rest of the story. Like, Amos's development was um, kind of the foundation on which some major points in the second book are built, where um, I needed her, well, I needed her character to sort of achieve two different goals or to kind of follow two different developmental arcs um, so that everything else that comes later in the series would make sense. So, first of all, I needed her to be heavily involved with religion so that it wouldn't seem strange, you know, to any of the other characters that she truly honestly believed that her daughter was the offspring of a god. They just had to accept that as like, oh, that almost, you know how she is. And second, I really needed her to be kind of a little bit outside the typical Queen of Egypt role, um, both in terms of, of what readers might think of as a typical Queen of Egypt and in terms of what that role would have been like historically, so that when she does make her move to place her daughter on the throne, which will happen a little bit later in the series in the second book, um, that would also seem like just kind of a natural thing for this person to do, and it wouldn't feel forced on the reader. So, yeah, in a very real way, she was indeed kind of um, preparing herself for the role in this series, um, and that's much of what the purpose of the segment bed is, to kind of set up the remainder of this big overarching story arc. Although I definitely tried to keep it as just kind of one self-contained story, so you can just enjoy that book on its own without feeling like you have to read more in a series if you don't want to. But I hope people will. <laughs> So I assume that the traditional role of a chief, great royal wife in Egypt was basically to bear sons for the pharaoh. Is that? Yep, that was <laughs> that was mainly it. As as so many royal women were throughout um, many different histories and different cultures, that was kind of the primary function to uh, have the royal offspring. Although Egypt had a lot of really unusual conventions, especially at this this particular period during the 18th dynasty. Um, the person who inherited the throne would not necessarily be the son of the pharaoh. Um, in fact, Thutmose I, who was Hatshepsut's father, was apparently not the son of the previous pharaoh and may not have been related to him at all. All we really know about him for sure is that um, we don't know exactly who his father was. We know his mother was a common woman, and we know he had a brilliant military record. He was a, a general or a major soldier of some sort, and somehow he ended up as pharaoh. And no one's really sure how exactly that happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a lot of conventions were different and can, could kind of be bent during the 18th dynasty, and that included a lot of women's roles. You do see women stepping into greater ceremonial roles during this period in Egyptian history. Um, for example, God's Wife of Amun is one of the titles that comes into play as a major plot point in the Sekhmet bed. 
And um, that was a title that was sort of revived during this period of Egyptian history. It used to be in use, you know, a couple hundred years before, and then it kind of fell out of favor, and now suddenly it's back, and you have women sort of taking over these these more um, politically important and religiously important roles. But for the most part, yes, great royal wife, great royal wife, uh, her job was to have some babies. And that was it. This <laughs> <laughs> um, is so often true, as you mentioned. Um, yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about Tutmos as a person. Um, the, the only thing I know about him, this is from reading Mara, Daughter of the Nile, when I was, you know, 13, 14, Oh, I love 15. that book. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of my favorites. <laughs> and at that point, Tutmos I is dead. And it's, it's a very different take on Hatshepsut from yours, uh, probably one more appropriate to the 1940s or 50s. I don't remember exactly when that book was read. But... Um, you know, he's he in that book. He is the general, the great general who has died, and he's you know the, like the savior of Egypt and all this kind of thing. Who is he to you? Um, oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think anyone's ever asked it in that way before. Um, to me, well, let's see. Thomas the first came into uh, came to the throne, kind of following on the heels of uh, these shoes that were a little bit difficult to fill. So there was a, a king that was two kings ahead of him named Amos. I know it gets very confusing. Like everybody had the name Amos during this time in Egyptian history. But this King Amos liberated Egypt from um, an invading force that had sort of occupied and ruled Egypt for a number of generations prior to that. Um, there, we call him today the Hyksos. In my book, I call them Hekakasalet, which is the sort of the ancient Egyptian version of that same name. But King Amos liberated Egypt and sort of restored, you know, good old-fashioned Egypt back to power and then his son, Amenhotep, took over, and then you have the I taking over this guy who kind of comes out of nowhere um, and is, is really not – you have to he, – like I said, he's got big shoes to follow, to, to fill, to um, follow up on this dynasty of kings that, that restored Egypt to its former greatness. And, like, you know, everyone was very patriotic about these guys, and rah, rah, Amos and Amenhotep, and then there's this dude who <laughs> – my imagination, um, in my fictional version, he's, he doesn't really know much about ruling. He's a great general, and, and Egypt needs that to make sure these, these um, Hekakasuet invaders don't come back and take over again. Um, but he's just kind of a common guy, and he doesn't really know what to do with the throne. So he sort of relies on um, his relationship with the two royal daughters who he marries, Amos, and her sister, Matnafret, to... Um, to kind of teach him how to be a king. And he does grow into his kingship very admirably. And I, I like him. I think he, my fictional portrayal of him is for the most part, a nice guy. He has his moments where he's really not that great, but, um, but for the most part, you know, he tries to be a loving husband and tries to be a good guy and just tries to do the best he can with this role. The gods have sort of placed on his shoulders, even though he really didn't ask for it. And this is in a sense, Amos's uh, opportunity, uh, the wife, Amos, not the, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it gets really confusing when it's not only everybody but men and women both. I mean, my Tatars do this too, and it's like so is this person male. Or I, I know, I know. I, I wish everybody could just have their own name. It would make history much simpler. Um, but but her opportunity then is that because she's the great royal wife. Um, and he doesn't really have the administrative part down, uh, of course, not right away when she's 13. But over time, she does grow to become more of an administrator. She's kind of 
she's almost like a yeah. ruler in a sense. Yeah, yeah. She starts to get sort of the trust of of being left with a lot of these projects of of ruling Egypt in her hands because you know he's got wars to fight. She can stay at home and kind of make sure people don't pick each other apart in the court and get into little catty fights that will eat up too much administrative time. And um, she, she accepts that role pretty well and, and takes to it well. And even more than that, she kind of relishes her role of God's life of Amun, which really appeals to her religious sensibilities. And she takes that on maybe a bit too much, a bit too eagerly. Tell us about that. What is the God's wife of Amun? Um, not a whole lot was known about the God's wife of Amun. Um, she, it, it was a, a station that only a woman could hold that was apparently by the time, at least by the time Hatshepsut took over a couple of Kings later um, was considered extremely important to the administration of Egypt as a whole, um, virtually to the point where uh, the temple couldn't function without her. Not a whole lot is known about exactly what she did. She had a lot of apparently involvement in, shall we say, satisfying the God. <laughs> Nobody is totally sure what that means or what she would have done um, physically or ceremonially to make sure Amun was uh, satisfied. Um, but there may be a clue to that in one of the titles of the God's wife of Amun, which is Hand of the King. And that may be an allusion to an ancient Egyptian creation myth, which involves uh, one of the gods having some special loan time, shall we say. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of mystery surrounding exactly what the role was, but I figure there was probably a lot of uh, special touching of the statue of the god. <laughs> and that was considered um, very, very vital to, to uh, Egypt carrying on as it should be. If the god was doing his creative business as he was supposed to and, you know, had the aid of the god's wife in, in performing this function, then the Nile would continue to flood and everybody would eat. And if the god was not satisfied in the right way, the floods would fail and everybody would be plunged into these horrible famines. It was, it, you know, we kind of giggle about it now, but it was considered an extremely important role um, for a woman to play. And, and it actually gave her almost as much power as the high priest of Amun, which had nearly as much power as the pharaoh. So a woman who was God's wife of Amun probably stood just a couple of steps below the pharaoh in terms of um, religious and political importance. That's really interesting, um, especially since there is, you know, God's wife of Amun implies that she actually is probably, um, I mean, she has a physical presence, but presumably she also has a spiritual presence. So she has a, a presence in the other world, whereas the high priest is more like a voice of the gods. I mean, the gods themselves appear as, as uh, well, what we would call idols, right? They're, right, yeah. Um, like the um, yeah, cow. statues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Statues were very, very important to the Egyptians. Any kind of physical representation was considered sort of a kind of magic. So, um, if you had a statue of a god, the god was literally living inside that statue. Like that was his actual presence. So, anything you did to the god or offered to the god, um, he actually felt and received, and and um, it was. It was not just, you know, oh, this statue represents the god, that was the god. <laughs> so, um, in, same thing with any images on a temple wall or in a mural, those, those were intended to be sort of magic spells that would make whatever was painted or carved on those walls sort of come true, either in this life or in the afterlife. So, yeah, they were very visual, uh, very literal culture, as far as anybody's able to tell. So, those statues are very important, and, yeah, you had to 
had to make sure you gave the statue just the, the right kind of, of touch to make sure Sonato continued to do its thing. Um, yeah, almost also um, reads dreams. She sees visions, uh, which I guess is how she... I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to go into too much detail about your plot, but as she becomes the... Even before she becomes the God's Wife of Almond, she is already known as someone who has a kind of spiritual gift. She reads, in, which is expressed by her reading of dreams. Uh, did you find it difficult to find a, a, to create a character with such a profound religious sensibility? It's not something that we see. Well, I mean, lots of places in the modern world we do see it, but it's not as common in the modern West. Yeah, it's not as common. Um, it's uh, I, I'm. It was a little bit difficult, I suppose. Um, I'm not a religious person at all, so writing from the perspective of a devout person maybe might take a little more imagination from me than perhaps it may for some author, other authors who, who just kind of feel that experience um, intuitively. But I think once you have a good feel for a character's motives and desires, it kind of becomes easier to put yourself into those roles and, and feel what they need to feel so that you can write a scene um, well, but I mean, yes, ancient Egyptian religion, like, as we just discussed, is very different from many religions that we have today. And um, even more confusing from a research perspective, it changed really dramatically over the course of Egyptian history. So, I mean, their culture was a very, very long one. It spanned about 3,000 years, and then there was this long period of maybe another five or six hundred years when ancient Egypt became influenced very strongly by Persia and then by Greece and then finally by ancient Rome. Today, we still think of that period as part of ancient Egypt, but obviously, you know, the culture was changing, the religion was changing, so much was changing about it. So I needed to make sure I was familiarizing myself not only with a very unfamiliar culture, but I needed to be sure I was hitting exactly that right window of time so that I could ensure that I was representing the religion the way it probably would have been practiced during Amos's lifetime. Now, how accurate I am, I guess, is anybody's guess. <laughs> I did the best I could with the resources I had, but um, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating to research. But but yeah, I mean, very, very strange, Not not something that we're used to. I mean, that whole idea that you can paint something on a wall and that will actually come to be is, is clearly, you know, not, not anything that we're accustomed to in, in our modern thoughts about religious experience. And sometimes I wonder if it's easier in a sense to put yourself into an unfamiliar situation if you're not a religious person. In other words, you probably have, don't have the same set of preconceptions that a person who's very devout, I mean, certainly you may not have the experience of um, transcendence or something that that a religious person would feel, but it might be easier to imagine ancient Egyptian religion if you're not constrained by the demands of a particular uh, religious tradition, don't you think? That that could be, yeah. And that's, that's definitely a possibility. I've never thought of it that way. I mean, I definitely think that I feel um, real sensations of awe and transcendence. I just happen to feel them about nature mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to anything spiritual. But um, but yeah, I mean, maybe you're right about that. Maybe it is a little bit easier for me to kind of just let go and imagine whatever whatever I need to in order to sort of hit the right notes. I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. Well, without a time machine, nobody can probably really pull you, <laughs> prove you wrong. So. Oh, I wish. I would love to go to ancient Egypt, but not live there, not live there forever. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I'd love to check it out. But, oh. yeah, a week observation time with good vaccinations and goodness knows yeah, what else. Okay. <laughs> 
So let's not forget that while Amos is on her path to becoming great wildlife and uh, God's wife of Amon and uh, eventually the mother of Hatshepsut, the person who's actually bearing the Pharaoh's sons is her sister, Menofret. Tell us about Menofret. Uh, I love Menofret. I have to say, she's my favorite character I've written so far out of all my books. A lot of people think I'm crazy for that, but... I just really, I really came to feel for her as I was writing her. But so I guess I should give a historical background on who she was or who she may have been. We don't really know um, exactly who she was. Um, kind of the only things we know about Menofret was was that um, she was an actual wife of Tutmosis the First. She was not just a concubine, so she had some um, important status, and um, she was definitely the mother of the the child who ended up becoming his heir who was called Tutmos II. Brace yourself. Like, all the Tutmoses start start falling like dominoes after this. There's a whole whole cascade of Tutmoses. Um, but she was the mother of Tutmos II, and she, there is some historical evidence that he also have been the mother of at least one of his other sons. He had um, three other sons, all of whom seemed to have predeceased him. So... Um, exactly how Mutnafert was tied to all those boys, we're not 100% sure. I made her the mother of all the boys, just because I could. <laughs> but um, we don't really know exactly what kind of ties she had to the royal family or what uh, what her role in the royal family was. She was almost certainly related in some way to the previous pharaoh, um, whether she was a daughter or a sister or an aunt or a cousin, you know, we don't really know. She was probably, in some way, though, uh, from his bloodline. It's almost certain that she was not actually the sister of Amos. That's something I made up. I mean, maybe some evidence will surface later that they were sisters, and that would be cool if that happened for me. <laughs> but um, that's just something that I kind of invented uh, because I liked the extra dramatic tension it added to the story. So I, I played around while I was in my, my playing around phase with this book. Um, I tried out different different ways to have sort of almost as antagonist to be a cousin or an aunt or just some outside woman who came from the pharaoh, the, the harem. And um, I never really, I just didn't like how it was turning out. I didn't feel that real sense of emotional turmoil until I decided one day, like, oh, maybe I should make them sisters and like really close sisters. And then this whole marriage thing sort of drives a wedge between them. So that's what I ended up doing. And, and Mutton Fred, I guess, is kind of intended to be the quote-unquote bad guy in this story, but she's really not. I mean, she was raised to expect that she would end up being the great royal wife, and then suddenly in this shocking moment that's sort of usurped from her, and she was confronted with this future where she's just going to be some lowly second wife. Like, yeah, she's still a queen of Egypt, but not as awesome a queen as she was always intended to be. And her younger sister is set in that place instead. So, I mean, obviously there's some really serious feelings that she has over this. And I, I really like Mutmafred. I think, I think she's the most compelling and interesting character in the entire book personally, but, <laughs> but I may be slightly biased because, you know, I created her and all. I love the uh, relationship between the sisters, actually. I mean, I, I like Mutmafred too. And I think anyone who's had a sister, especially a sister they've been close with, uh, would understand that because it's a real tug, you know, I mean, they, they love each other and yet they're fighting over the same guy. I mean, hopefully yeah. you don't normally get that in the, among between sisters, but you know, sisters are always fighting for something, right? Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> um, Explain why in your book, I mean, I, I understand this isn't historical, but why in your book, um, the younger sister is preferred over the older one? 
Um, well, almost had has that uh, strong connection to the gods. She has that ability to read dreams, and um, that is seen as sort of a and something that will bolster this this new pharaoh's claim to the throne. So, like we said earlier, he just comes from this common family. He doesn't have any royal ties, but they need his his ability as a soldier to make sure Egypt stays safe. So he just gets the throne, and he gets this uh, this wife sort of thrown in, who everybody in at least in the city of Wasit knows um, has a very very close connection to the gods. She's what what I ended up calling God chosen. So she's very special, and um, seen as is extremely favored by all of the principal gods of Egypt. So she is appointed as his great royal wife, so that basically so that the, the rest of the nobles in the court won't start muttering against this guy who's just some soldier, and why does he get the throne, but I don't. Um, so she's kind of there to sort of back him up politically and, and sort of serve as a signboard to everybody else that, that the gods are behind the I, so you better back off. <laughs> so um, uh, I'm just blocking here for a moment on what it was that I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah, so so that's Amos's um, claim to, to be great royal wife. Menorfrit almost immediately, or quite early in the book, uh, gets her own back by um, telling Amos that for her wedding, they should both be what she refers to as understated. <laughs> <laughs> and then she shows up at the wedding herself in her best, you know, linen robe loaded with jewels. <laughs> Yeah, notes. uh, Shall we say notes this? Um, And she's also, as you mentioned, a couple of years older. So she's sixteen. She's actually, by ancient Egyptian standards, she's a woman. Oh yes. Uh, Whereas Amos is just barely a woman at the beginning. This, uh, I mean, that's kind of the the push pull of the whole story. I mean, it's very much typical of Mutnofit to do that. Um, what what is it that you sense in her as a character that that is different from Amos? Well, I think Mutnofit really obviously she has some selfish motives. She wants the the acclaim and the the wealth of being the great royal wife and not just a second wife. Um, that's what she's been raised to expect her entire life. She thought this would be her destiny and her future to be, you know, sitting beside the pharaoh on the throne and having almost as many accolades as he has. So, of course, she wants that for herself. And then I think she also, later on, she kind of, she sees almost for exactly who she is, you know, warts and all. And she's kind of able to see into some of Amos's sort of youthful mistakes. But being a second wife and not having the political power to do anything about it, her hands are really tied. So the only way she has to fight back against what she sees as this great unfairness coming from Amos, uh, not only against herself, but against Egypt, um, the only way she has to sort of put Amos in her place is to use these sort of mean, catty tactics. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the only, the only thing she can do. She, she's very very hobbled by um, her place in society. And she, you know, never expected to be in a situation where she could only fight through these petty means and, you know, spies and, and mean tricks, like tricking your 13 year old sister into wearing her crappiest dress to the wedding. <laughs> you know? She, she does what she can with the resources she has. And, and, um, you know, I, I feel for her I have to say, I still, still love Matt Lefrit. She's, <laughs> She's kind of a tragic figure. She expected so much more out of life and ended up kind of getting the short end of the stick by her standards. I don't think anybody else would think that being a queen of Egypt would be the short end of the stick, but she certainly does. And uh, she just, I, I don't see her 
as a, as a mean, petty person or uh, as somebody who uh, is like small wheels or anything like that. I just see her being somebody who's really trapped by convention and doesn't see any other way to do what she feels is right than to kind of fight with you. Really sort of ridiculous, like, yard scratching your eyes out with my nails tactics. And is that what you like about her, that she is, that she sticks to her guns, in effect, that she fights for what she wants? Yeah, I think that is part of what I like about her. I also like sort of the inherent tragedy in her situation, where even though she's always accepted that she'll have this great power, she comes to find out that she really has no power at all, that all the power lies with the throne, and she doesn't get that. And, you know, suddenly her life is completely different from what she always thought it would be. I do feel like, I have to admit, I like tragic characters a lot. Like, I was looking through all the books I've, I've written so far and all the ones I have outlined and like, uh, all of them sort of end horribly. (laughs) I try to leaven it with a little bit of hope at uh, the endings of all the books, but man, almost all these books have these like dark endings where, (laughs) where characters really sort of have this awful wake up call and they're like, uh, even though I have all of Egypt, I've got all these other problems too. And I think that's, that's kind of what I like so much about Montnefort is I really like stories where, where there's this, um, there's a little bit of darkness sort of shadowing even even all the, the great pomp and, and uh, glamour of something like the Egyptian court. There's always a little little sadness lurking somewhere in there. So that's kind of what she is for me. She's that little bit of sadness that lurks in, behind all the beauty. That's interesting. So normally we wouldn't go as far into the plot as this, but since the whole point of the series is to talk about Hatshepsut, uh, let's talk about her just a little bit. She comes in late in the story. And what is interesting is that she is perceived because of this this um, experience that her mother has had uh, as not as the Pharaoh's daughter, but as the Pharaoh's son. She's presented as the Pharaoh's son. Can you talk yes. about that a little bit? Yes. Well, um, you know, everyone's expecting because Amos is so connected to the gods and she says, hey, I've had this great vision. I'm going to have a boy. Everyone's expecting that it'll be a boy, but surprise, <laughs> it's a girl <laughs> the baby's born. Um, and of course, obviously, that's not really much of a spoiler because everybody knows that Hatshepsut was a woman who reigned as Pharaoh. So um, ho- hopefully that didn't spoil a major plot point for anybody. If it did, they need to uh, brush up on their history. Um, but, but it's also, I mean, you have to remember that, that almost being as spiritual as she is, she truly believes that a person's inner essence, or what the Egyptians would have called a ka, is much more important than the person's physical body. So without spoiling too many of the really cool scenes in the book, I have to say that um, you just have to keep in mind that almost kind of gets away with this because of that the way everyone trusts her connection to the gods, that uh, most of the characters, or some of the characters, I should say, are able to accept um, her word when she says, no, Hatshepsut is a boy. You know, pay no attention to the physical body. She's a prince inside. But not all of those characters are able to accept it. Certainly, Mutnafret's one of them. And some of the other characters who are resistant to that may actually surprise the reader, too. So, um... Research is obviously important to you. I mean, it's very clear in the books. At times I felt like I was walking the halls with your characters. I mean, it's really well done. The descriptions are wonderful. Oh, thank you. That's great. Thanks. Uh, um, my question is, because I'm a historian and I write historical fiction, so I'm always fascinated in where the overlap is between history and historical <laughs> fiction. They're clearly not the yeah. same thing. Um, so what is it? How much do we actually know about Hatshepsut as a ruler? Oh, man. Well... Gosh, 
a lot more about her than we know about a lot of pharaohs, but that's still not as much as we know about, say, Queen Elizabeth. You know, obviously, the history goes back much further with her, and a lot of it's been lost to time. But also, we're dealing with so many alien aspects of this culture that really isn't around anymore. I mean, like I said, ancient Egypt was a thing for 3,000 years and, and more than that, and then suddenly it's not anymore. And, you know, so much has changed during, during the intervening eons, <laughs> and um, it, it's difficult to sort of look at the evidence we do have for her and extrapolate from that and be confident in, in the assumptions we're making about her as a person and her time. So we don't know a whole lot about her. I mean, most of the the, the way I represent um, her family, her lineage, I should say, in the books is correct. We know that she was the daughter of Tutmosis I and um, a queen named Amos, and we know that she was half-brother to Tutmosis II, who she ends up marrying later on. Um, that's not really most of what we what we can say with absolute certainty that we that we definitely know about her is, is contained right there. Um, other than that, she was uh, one of the greatest builders in Egyptian history. She built more monuments and more um, creative, more artistically adventurous monuments than had been built, um, as far as we know, up until that point. And and she actually exceeded some of the, the great builders who came after her, like Ramses II, um, built a little bit more than she did, but not by a very wide margin. So she clearly had a lot of um, a lot of vested interest in sort of making her mark on the world. I don't know how much of that was because her reign was apparently very peaceful and prosperous, and she had the resources to do that, or how much of that was because maybe she felt a need to sort of assert her identity um, over the land and say, here I am, I'm a pharaoh, even though I'm in a lady's body. Um, that's It's so easy to make assumptions about a figure like her, um, and it's so difficult to know that we're really definitely on the right track. Um, but as far as pharaohs go, we know a pretty good amount about her. <laughs> I guess that's all I can say with any real accuracy. And does that free you as a novelist, or does it? do you feel constrained by the historical record or the lack of historical record? Well, you know, um, I, writing about historical figures definitely puts a lot of constraints on a writer, but I actually really like that constraint. I know different authors of historical fiction will kind of approach that problem in different ways. I happen to be one who tries very hard to stick to known history for most of my storytelling, as much as I'm able to. Um, so sticking to the facts is a little bit restrictive, but I also really like that creative challenge. I really love trying to work out a way to figure out how I can flesh out these characters from a dis distant past um, and make their struggles and their feelings really relevant to modern readers without just kicking over all the barriers of history and making it feel too modern, you know. Um, and we, we don't know much about any of the figures in the entire series of the book. I mean, obviously, like I said, <laughs> a really long time ago. Um, but one of the ones, uh, he often comes up frequently when anybody writes about Hatshepsut in fiction as uh, her stepson slash co-ruler, um, who is a pharaoh named Tutmos III. Yes, another Tutmos. This is the last one for a while, so so read the sign of relief. Um, we probably know more about Tutmos III than we do about almost any other pharaoh who's ever lived. He, he had a really great historical record. Um, we know that he ruled jointly with Hatshepsut, like as co-pharaohs. They were both pharaohs at the same time for roughly 22 years. Um, but then one of the big mysteries of history, like one of the things we don't know about Tutmosis III is why he erased a whole bunch of her images from monuments after 
after she died. And it was just kind of later in his rule too. But he went on this weird campaign of like trying to undo her from history. And like we talked about earlier, if you carve a person's image on a wall or if you make an image of a person, they actually dwell in that image. So in effect, he was kind of murdering her in the afterlife. And it's just such a, a strange tack for him to take after all this historical evidence that he apparently was very content to rule alongside her for a long time. So that's one of the big mysteries about the whole Hatshepsut story is, is what the heck happens with Tutmos III. And that was a constraint I really felt like I needed to maintain. Like I, I needed to figure out a way to make this story make sense up until the point where Tutmos III destroys all these monuments, which of course happens at the end of the last book in the series. But, um, you know, he was, he was such a, such a well, well-documented Pharaoh. Um, but one thing that's not well-documented is why he did this to her monuments. And, um, that was one of the constraints I, I really found kind of difficult to work with. And I think maybe the idea I came up with and, and put forth in my fictional portrayal, <laughs> remember it's fiction, it's pretty far-fetched. <laughs> I'll be the first to say it. It's one of those times where I really stretched history much more than I'm accustomed to doing, but I think it worked out well in the context of, um, making Tutmos III seem like a real person who was doing this out of a reaction to real circumstances and not just, oh, well, history says he destroyed these monuments, so I guess I have to have him destroy a bunch of monuments. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a long way of saying um, I try not to stretch history except when I do. <laughs> well, that's why you're a historical novelist. <laughs> <laughs> right. I get to do that sometimes. <laughs> so what would you like readers to take away from the Seth Method? Um, well, I think, uh, I hope readers can appreciate how similar the characters' desires and emotions are um, to the things that people want and feel today. I think that's probably what I love so much about historical fiction. It really just illustrates how alike all of humanity is and always has been, um, even thousands of years ago. You know, we all feel jealousy. We all feel uh, anger at people we otherwise love. Um, and we all want things that maybe we can't have or shouldn't have. So... I hope people take that away from the segment bed. That's great. So the series continues with The Crook and Flail, uh, which I've read, and Sovereign of Stars and The Bull of Men, which I plan to read but haven't yet. Uh, cool. But it's done now, right? It's. Um, are you going to continue working with these characters? Are you going to miss them? Um, I'm definitely going to miss them a lot. It was surprisingly difficult to say goodbye to them at the end of The Bull of Men. Um, I, I was kind of working really hard at getting all these books out so I could just kind of move on to a new setting. And then when I got to the end of the bowl of men, I was like, Oh, <laughs> I'm going to miss these guys. And there's one point there's late in sovereign of stars. One character in particular dies and she'd been with me through several books. And I was, I kind of got a little bit teary eyed when she uh, went to the West, as the ancient Egyptians would have said. Um, so the series itself is complete, but I've actually had a lot of readers um, write to tell me how much they really loved this one particular character named Marriott, and she shows up in The Bull of Men. So I've been thinking about maybe writing a short novella sometime in the future about kind of her path to the throne and her story and just giving that um, as sort of a, a bonus to people who are on my mailing list. So I might do that one of these days, um, but the series itself is complete. That's interesting. You have a second pen name, Libby Hawker, uh, which, yes. and you're writing a novel about Pocahontas, as I understand it. Yes, and I'm going to be doing all of my historical fiction under the Libby Hawker pen name from now on, because 
too many pen names are just getting out of control. <laughs> I got to keep it all reined in. Um, but yes, I am currently working on a novel about um, Pocahontas and and um, the the politics surrounding the Jamestown colony and how that affected her and her people. Um, it's it's a surprisingly long book. I didn't think it was going to get as long as it is, but but it's kind of it's building up steam. Um, so the book's called Tidewater. And it'll be coming out um, probably just a few weeks here. It depends on how long it takes my editor to be able to go through the entire long book. But yeah, it covers her regrettably short but very eventful life. And, and of course, it, you know all, all of that turmoil of, of um, these English settlers sort of coming into contact um, with the native Powhatan people. It's, it's shaping up to be a surprisingly heavy story to write, too. Or maybe not surprising, I guess I should say. <laughs> well, that's a bit a- of a bit of an emotional roller coaster yeah that's impressive that you've got another one coming out so soon do you have another story already in mind oh my gosh i have so so many ideas it's a good thing i was able to quit my day job and start writing full-time because otherwise i I don't even think i'll be able to get through them writing full-time but yeah i actually i have myself um now that i am doing this full-time i'm on a very rigorous schedule of writing and publishing one of the nice things about self-publishing in fact is that you can publish as often as you want to um, you're not really constrained by contracts that might keep you down to one book a year. So um, I'm expecting to bring out a new historical novel like every two to three months for at least the next year and a half. And if I want to keep going at that ridiculous rate at that point, I will. But <laughs> but if not, I'm going to take a break uh, uh, after that time and maybe do a little bit of traveling. But um, after Tidewater comes out, the next one will be a book about Zenobia, who was a a short-term empress of part of Rome. Very fascinating story about another female ruler. Um, After that, I'm going to be doing a novel that deals with the fall of Egypt to the Persian king Cambyses. Um, That one is going to be told from a very unusual point of view, and it will definitely be a bit racier than my usual books. (laughs) So fans of, um, it won't be a historical romance, but people who like a little bit of that juicy romance stuff might want to check that one out. Um, and then after that, I'm actually going back to my roots at the request of uh, many of my awesome, wonderful, supportive readers who have been asking me if I'm ever going to do another Egyptian series. So I am. I'm going to be going back to 18th Dynasty, and I'm going to be doing a whole like three or four book series on the very strange and very fascinating Amarna period of Egypt. Ah, okay. Well, that'll be something to look forward to. And so, in fact, all of these books sound really great. So, thank- oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, you're going to be oh, around. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Once a month, you're going to be around. So, people should uh, start call- uh, checking uh, at the beginning of each month or the end of the preceding month um, for your interviews with other authors. And uh, yes. I will continue to post in the middle of the month. So I'm, I have one coming up in the middle of June and then Libby's uh, interviews will be the next one after that. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie and today I've been talking with Libby Hawker, author of The Sekhmet Bed. You can find out more about her at LibbyHawker.com. That's L-I-B-B-I-E-H-A-W-K-E-R as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. 
The New Books Network is run by volunteers. If you enjoyed the interview you've just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to any page at newbooksnetwork.com, that's newbooksnetwork as one word, and clicking on the link to shop at amazon.com, or by shopping for books at the new University Press Bookstore. Again, that's University Press Bookstore as one word, uh, followed by .com. Yes, it does include historical fiction. 